So saints, we are in James chapter 1 today. Uh, we're concluding uh, the gospel of James, or uh, the letter of James in chapter 1. And so if you could turn there with me for our introduction, usually I do a review of what we did last. What I'm going to do since we're closing James chapter 1 is I'm going to read from verse 1 until uh, our text today. So in James chapter 1, starting in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in a dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down the, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And then the next two verses are our passage for today. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction 
and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And this is the word of the Lord. Yes. Father, to you be the glory today. May you help us to glorify you in the listening of your word. Help me, Lord God, to be a good steward of your word today. We thank you, God, because your word is inexhaustible. We can never exhaust it. Your word is forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will endure forever. May your word reside in our hearts today, God. May it bring correction, training, and righteousness. May it build up the church for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Um, two points today real quick uh, that we're going to cover. Point number one in verse 26, we're going to talk about worthless religion. And in point number two in verse 27, we're going to talk about pure religion. So you have worthless religion, then you have pure religion. And point number one from verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Can I get an ouch? James has been very, like, just, I want to say amen, but many times I said, man, like, ouch, that hurt. It ex it's exposing us in a sense. When James is talking about religion here, he's speaking of piety and reverence. It's actually a term that describes one who's ritualistic and liturgical. So to be liturgical, if you don't know, is it has to do with like a formal public religious act of worship that is orderly. And so to be religious means that the person is concerned with liturgy and ritual worship ceremonies. And so when James is dealing with someone who is about ritual and ceremony, he's actually getting into the root of the religion that he's talking about here. The word religion in the New Testament, by the way, is very unique. Other translations I learned uh, actually put required when it talks about religion, what is required by God. And then it also talks about religion in a negative sense where it's self-made belief. Self-made belief to talk about religion. The Lexham Theological Wordbook gave a brief description that I think will help us today to understand what Paul or uh, what James is talking about here when he talks about worship, it described one who's religious as this, or religion. Religion is a ritual act of devotion for a divine being. It refers typically to external rituals that display a commitment to a God. And I do believe James is speaking of someone here in our text as a worshiper. One who is devoted to performing rituals for a divine being. So anyone who thinks they are someone who is devoted and ritualistic, who acts out their reverence and practice and does not bridle their tongue, they're deceived. So James describes the heart as deceived since it is in the heart that true worship and religion is performed. It's actually what God is concerned with the most. It's cool. We're thankful that you're here. We're thankful that you raised your hands and that you're loving Jesus as you're here. Um, it looks good on the outside, but God's more concerned with what happens inside. 
concerned with the heart issue. It's what God is actually concerned with the most. So Jesus addressing the Pharisees, if you remember Matthew 15, 8 through 9, Matthew 15, 8 through 9, this is what Jesus said. He talked about being more concerned with the heart than what happens outside of it in Matthew 15, verses 8 through 9. As a matter of fact, let's turn there. Matthew 15, 8 through 9. He's talking to Pharisees and scribes. Matthew 15, 8 through 9. Go there. Let's start in verse 7. He says, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy when he said in verse 8 through 9, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. God is more concerned about what happens in the heart more than what happens outside of it. So what James is saying here is no different than what the scriptures have already said. If you remember Proverbs 4.23, it says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Luke 6.45 says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure, his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So a deceived heart is one that cannot see the issues within it while attempting to be reverent. Issues like hypocrisy, being about duty and not devotion, rule keeping versus heartfelt obedience. Churches are built on rule keeping, more concerned about the outward appearance than the heart. So attempts to be about religion apart from authenticity is what James is concerned with here. Someone who does not practice self-control with what they say and yet claim to be reverent are deceived. Listen, man, this has been very convicting for us, hasn't it? I hope that you're not like feeling beat up every Sunday. I mean, if you are, that might be a good thing for some of y'all. I know for me it is. But the encouraging thing is that God is showing us what's wrong with us. And he's giving us the answer to that problem. It's been very convicting for us. James here is making the point that one who presumes and assumes that they are reverent, ritualistic, or ceremonial, they must show it by bridling their tongue. James asserts the bridling of the tongue as evidence as true reverence for God. He stated this to those who were dispersed, who, you know, it, who may have even recalled what the scripture already said about what they were saying while being persecuted. They were facing situations where they actually maybe have wanted to voice their concerns or their complaints to their persecutors. I think James had in mind Proverbs 29, 11, where it says a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. What would you say if someone was in your face? 
What would you say if you were persecuted? What would you say if you felt great disrespect from somebody right in front of you at the time saying something to you that was disrespectful? What would we say? The better question is, what does God say? Psalm 34, 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Psalm 39, 1, I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with the muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. Muzzle your mouth. Psalm 141.3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. You see what James is getting at here? I'm pretty sure he's drawing this from Old Testament scripture. There was already an Old Testament scripture idea about guarding and keeping the tongue from saying things without restraint. God help us. James uses the example of the bridle on a horse. And if, for those of us in the city, I grew up in the city, I have no idea what all this meant. We didn't ride horses in the city. Actually, in Philly, they do. That's crazy to me. I was driving down in Philly one time, uh, I think it was uh, in North Philly somewhere, and I saw a brother riding on a horse right across from me, <laughs> right on the cement. Now I was just like, this is crazy. What is going on in Philly? Um, <laughs> but the bridle on the tongue, the picture that James is talking about here, it includes actually what's called a headstall. So it's a strap that goes around the, the head of the horse. It's a piece of equipment that goes on the head and attaches to the cheek of the horse. And the headstall holds what's called a bit, a mullen that goes in the mouth of the horse. And the reins that are attached to it are supposed to control the horse to go wherever the rider wants it to go. That's the picture of bridling the tongue. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, meaning doesn't have self-control over the tongue or is able to control the direction of their tongue, James says that their outward practice of piety and religion is worthless. As a matter of fact, he says, they are deceived. So their religion is empty, vain, useless, even frivolous, of no worth or importance. What this is showing us, saints, is that what we say matters, especially when claiming to be a worshiper of God. James is essentially saying that our worship of God is fruitless when we do nothing to bridle the tongue. Ouch. This really was his concern here in our text. Even in the beginning of the letter, he was concerned about what believers would say. When you meet trials of various kinds, what do you say? Do we say that they are producing something good? What should we say when lowly? Feeling low class. Well, James said we should boast in our exaltation. When under trial, can we say that we have a crown? Or have we complained about the trial? What do we say when lured and enticed by our own desires? 
Well, Jesus gave us what to say. It is written. All of these demand a question about what we are to say. If we are found with saying things with no self-control over our tongues, you know what? God ain't feeling you. He, he doesn't want people to come with the show. He doesn't want worship with just hands and lips. He just doesn't want good music, a nice building, nice flooring, nice paint. God really don't care about how you smell coming into church. Now, don't get a twist. <laughs> Make sure you come to church smelling all right. Um, my point is maybe we've exalted what worship really looks like the wrong way. Maybe we've come thinking, okay, I, I, I can't wait, you know, until I go to church and, and, you know, but in your heart or with your mouth, You've been saying things that have been contrary to the one you're worshiping. And listen, this is not a downer. This is actually good because God is showing us what's wrong with us. Now, because I know some of us struggle in this area, especially if we're married. Can, can I get an amen, married folk? You know how it is. That's how it is. But this is not to question your salvation, but it is a push for repentance. We've all failed at this, married or not. In my culture, to be vocal was socially acceptable. Hispanic culture, like one time I went to Connecticut to visit family, and what they did for the two days I was there was crack on each other nonstop, nine hours a day busting on each other, talking about each other. And it, I, I was just like, wow, this is like one of those movies, you know, when you go to your family, you know, get togethers and they embarrass you if you bring someone that you're trying to introduce and but they crack on them and they're cracking on you and then they're telling your business to them. That was my family up in Connecticut. That's how I grew up. You were vocal about differences, about things you liked or didn't like. You know, it was actually socially acceptable to be open about what you needed to say. But not only as a Hispanic, but even in hip hop culture, it was encouraged that if you felt or thought something, even if it was offensive, you could say it on the track. Keeping it real was how I grew up in my culture. Speaking openly about how I felt or what I thought about things was acceptable. Actually encouraged. Now, this is important to remember that James is actually pushing back on that. James is introducing his letter, in fact, with what is concerning him about believers who were dispersed. He began with the issue of their conduct coinciding with their practice, which was to be weighed with how they spoke. James was not only concerned with their needing to be action, but when doing and showing action, an unbridled tongue would void all the practice and all the supposed reverence that one said they had. Peter also had the same concern in 1 Peter 3.10. 
What we really say matters, saints, because what comes from our mouth speaks of what is abundant in our hearts. The reason why you say what you say is because it's in your heart to say it. I can't believe I said that. No, you can believe it if you knew your heart. How can he say? No, that was in their hearts. Matthew 12, 33-37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he said. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil brings forth evil. I tell you, on a day of judgment, Jesus says, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Ouch. Watch what you say. Really, what should come out of our mouth at the end of the day? Well, Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So we should consider speaking that which builds up, especially when it comes to those without faith. If we are all honest, we have been imperfect and really keeping a good testimony with what we say. What James is talking about here is that our faith is inseparable from what we say. And what we say is inseparable from our hearts. So the practice of our faith is worthless if we do not practice self-control, what we say. I know some of us are actually recalling James 3.8. James 3.8 says, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. What are you talking about, Lois? James says you can't control the tongue, and yet you're telling us to practice self-control. What you're forgetting is you have the Holy Spirit, though. You got the Holy Spirit. Which means that when he brings conviction, there can be self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And with God's help, we can have a bridal tongue under the control of the Holy Spirit. No man can tame the tongue, no doubt, but with God. We can practice self-control with God. That's what we need. So a ritual act of devotion for God, a worship of God devoid of a bridal tongue, proves that God ain't feeling you. It is futile, empty, of no worth. Your religion is worthless. We should watch what we say. You know, I was, uh, according to one statistician, the average person spends at least 13 years of his life talking. For some of y'all, it's more. <laughs> the average person spends at least 13 years of his life talking. On a normal day, something like 18,000 words are likely to be used. Roughly equivalent to a book of 54 pages. While in the course of a single year, his words will fill, check it, 66 books. Each containing 800 pages. Watch what you say. 
The more you talk, the more <laughs> you're probably going to end up saying something whack. Rather than filling your year with 66 books containing 800 pages, man, we need to be about the 66 books of the canon of Scripture. Straight up. The older I get, the more I'm finding out that the less I need to say is actually the best way. Even if I, Lynette is on my last nerve. Listen, Lord, help me. Help me to listen, to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We need to practice restraint. And God has given us the Holy Spirit to do so. We should be slow to speak and weigh more what we may say at the time when faced with situations that press on us to say other than what God wants us to say at that time. James wanted saints who were tried and persecuted to still show self-control over the tongue because what matters most is their faith on display. So James now moves from what is a worthless religion to a pure one, which is our second and last point here in verse 27, a pure religion. He says in verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So now he turns to a religion that is pure and undefiled. God is showing us what actually is a pure act of devotion. Pure here speaks of rituals, outward acts of faith that are clean. Then James also speaks of religion that is undefiled, meaning untainted or ritually acceptable to God or morally acceptable to God. What is unacceptable or worthless, empty, vain, useless, and frivolous is religion that is professed and practiced but has an unbridled tongue. A pure and undefiled practice of piety or faith is one that practices self-control over the tongue. So when thinking of a, a, someone who's religious, what actually comes to mind when you think of someone who's religious? When you hear the word religion, what do you think of? Some of us may think of Pharisees. Some of us may think of, you know, uh, a suit and tie or, you know, uh, a liturgy that's very strict. You know, yeah, like you, you, you see these things like when you think of religion, you think of objects or things that the world thinks of when it comes to religion. A robed minister. Incense around the table, you know, like this almost untouchable table or even like an altar. A lot, and, and, and a lot of Hispanic culture, like when it comes to the altar, it's a sacred place. If you wanted to speak, you would not step up into the altar. You would actually talk down here because <laughs> this is holy ground. So th there's a lot of imagery when we think of religion. You may have thought of a robe minister, a person who prays for hours as someone who's really religious. Someone may even think of someone religious that memorized the whole Bible or sections of it, or even an eloquent speaker or someone who speaks powerfully behind the pulpit. We all have these images. But you know what? James doesn't speak of any of it. 
James doesn't speak of anything that most of us have thought as pure and acceptable religion. Instead, he points to two things that we need to pay careful attention to, two things that may even challenge our biases as to what is biblical and acceptable to God as an act of worship. First, James says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So notice that James does not point to the synagogue as the center of being religious. He doesn't point to religious elites. He could have told them that pure and undefiled religion can be found at the synagogue. The synagogue is one of those pictures I actually had in mind when it comes to religion in reading the book of James. In fact, most religions in the world practice gathering together, if you notice, and worship together. When people think religiously, they think of the assembly, the synagogue. But since the people of God here were scattered, they might have struggled with assembling together. Which made uh, me think of how many struggle to assemble even without being persecuted. It's funny how in the book of Hebrews it was said, do not forsake the fellowship of the saints, talking to a persecuted people who were persecuted for getting together. And yet, we struggle coming on a Sunday. I'm just saying. For James, pure and undefiled religion is found where one has self-control over the tongue, which no one can do without the Holy Spirit, and when one visits orphans and widows in their affliction. James doesn't bring up what most of us may have thought when it comes to religion. When one says they are of faith in the Christian faith, then it must show evidence by the care of those who are afflicted. Now, before God the Father, this is true religion. 1 Corinthians 13, 3, this is what Paul said to the church at Corinth. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Without the love of God, in Christ, efforts to alleviate suffering in the world really count as nothing. So I'm not talking about just doing good acts in the world. Before God the Father, pure and undefiled religion is found in someone who has self-control with the help of the Holy Spirit. And when they visit orphans and widows in their affliction, this is evidence of devotion for God. It is a ritual that one is committed to, to show to the Lord that they are, in fact, a worshiper. Now, it's not required for salvation, but listen, it is evidence of it. Now, an orphan speaks of children who are fatherless and a widow is a person who has lost a husband or wife. A wife whose husband dies makes her a widow or a husband who loses a wife. We've been going through the book of Isaiah. If you notice, if you haven't gone to small group, you should go. But we've been going through the book of Isaiah. And from the very beginning, Isaiah addressed this very issue. Now, Judah, the southern kingdom, was found to be in sin. And the Psalms are full, actually, with this plea to God's people. Where he talks about in the Psalms, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed. Blessed is the one who considers the poor in the day of trouble. The Lord delivers him. 
Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. I know that the Lord will ma maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. The Bible's very clear about justice for those in need. Now, just a point of clarification. If you felt nervous right now about, for instance, this social justice gospel out there, you may want to check your heart right now. Because there is that debate out there about the social justice gospel, about social justice. But I'm not saying that our identity is found in that. Nor am I saying that, you know, uh, justice for those who are oppressed is a bad thing. I think that adopting a worldview is evil. I do believe that the Bible has all the answers we need to deal with social injustices. There is no comparison to the scripture. But let's remember that before God, doing these things are good. And they are proof, he says, that we are of faith. Worthless religion is when someone speaks with an unbridled tongue, but religion before God that is pure and undefiled is a faith that shows evidence by tending to those in need, those that are afflicted and suffering. I struggle with this passage because I'm like, we don't have orphanages in Lancaster City. Not, not that I know of. Maybe there are. But listen, we do have orphan children. We have many that have been abandoned by fathers and mothers. We have single mothers, single fathers. I learned that there are about 23,756,000 homes with a single parent in America. 15% of them are Asian, 24% of them are white, 64% of them are black, and 42% of them are Hispanic. In 2020, nearly 19 million children, amounting to 25% of all children in the U.S., were living in single-parent families. That percentage is nearly three times the level in 1960 of 9%. America's proportion of children living with a single parent in America is more than three times of the world with the average level of 7%. There's a problem here. So we as a church, if we are all called Christian, shouldn't we meet the needs of those who are afflicted in our church? Widows who are left we're trying to figure out life with, without their husband or wife. What about single fathers and mothers who didn't plan for their lives to, for them to raise their kids by themselves and someone decided to leave them with that responsibility? Listen, I've known in my life the strongest people I've seen in my life are single mothers and single fathers. The good ones. Now, people try to bag single fathers as being a certain, you know, whatever, and they put themselves in that situation. Listen, I know good single fathers who love Jesus and are in that situation, and they're struggling just to have visitation. If we call ourselves religious, are we showing it by caring for those who are afflicted? Now, you can pray all you want, memorize scripture all you want, but without bridling your tongue. And if you're neglecting orphans and widows, those of the orphans and widows of our day, 
Don't talk to me about your devotion. Don't come to me and say, man, you know, like, no, no, no. Look out for one another. Who are those single mothers and fathers? Who are the children who are orphaned today? And this is why community is important. Who in our church are those who are afflicted and suffering? If you can't answer that question, you need to go back to your prayer closet and ask God to put it into your heart to find out what needs you can meet. Of course, there has been the sin of being about worldly social justice only, you know, and, and not there's people out there trying to do good. But listen, it's not just about doing the good. It's about the outworking of our faith, not abandoning our faith so that our efforts then could be acceptable to the world. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the father is this. So when meeting needs, we need always ask the question, is this pleasing to God the Father? Am I speaking and sharing the gospel? 1 John 3, 17 says, but if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So are you visiting orphans and widows? Are you helping single mothers and fathers in the church? Are you concerned for them? Listen, we've had people in dire situations because they didn't plan to be single. We had husbands just leave their wives and then telling them to figure it out for themselves. My heart goes out to single mothers and fathers. If you're here today, we're praying for you. And if you're in need, we're here for you. James here includes not only that, but he includes something else here. The second thing, James says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, and this is why this is different than actually the world and the way they're doing things as far as handling the ailments and the issues of the world. The second thing he says to keep oneself unstained from the world. That is pure and undefiled religion before God the Father. He's talking about personal holiness. So being ceremonially clean and untainted, guarded and protected from being immoral and impure from the world is true religion before God. What you do personally before God matters. What you do at home by yourself when no one's looking matters. This is why meeting needs is not enough. James had a very sobering book already, if you hadn't heard or read it. It can even feel heavy for some of us. But I want to share the good news with you today that what James is saying here is that God has given us the means to be of pure religion because our religion is not based on performances, not based on outward acts. It's based on the fact that if we understand we're broken and needy of God, we come to him for help, he will help us in a time of need. So it's not a just, just about going out and visiting orphans and widows and dealing with the social injustices of our time. God has also given us the means to live pure and holy as we work out our faith. 
So considering the whole counsel of God, keeping oneself unstained from the world cannot happen without the Holy Spirit. And in fact, he's given us that. Just like we can't tame the tongue by ourselves, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. We know that with God, the Holy Spirit, we can practice self-control. So that's why I say, like, you know, I used to go to the boys club growing up. And I remember, embarrassingly, you know, my mom telling me to go and to collect what was called the boys club cheese brick. I remember standing in line, and back in the day, you used to get busted on for having anything having to do with free, or if you were found in the Goodwill, you'd get cracked on right away. I remember, I never bought anything from there. Like, I always told my parents, buy me something name brand, please. Then I'll get bullied at school. Um, but I remember she put me in the line, and to my hesitation, I, I stood there. And then the newspaper just decided to come that day, take a picture. And I'm there in line, like, and I saw my, and all my friends cracked on me. I saw you at the line getting some boys club cheese, you know, just like, man, come on. I know you get, get it too, you know what I'm saying? We all got it, you know? They were doing good, giving people like my family, my mom who was a single mother abused, you know, my father abusing my mom, taking money from my mother, coming home just to abuse her and take from her. Family, families like ours needed that help. We needed it. But what we needed most was the church. We needed an unstained church. We needed a holy church. We needed a gospel preaching church that preached the word, that was faithful to the scripture. More than filling stomachs, man, I, I needed my heart to be filled. That's what the world wants to do. We need to fill stomachs. We need to give, empower people to be about themselves. The gospel's the opposite of that. It tells you how evil you are just by yourself and how much you need Jesus. But you know what? If we're preaching without living what God has called us to do, our religion is worthless. To keep oneself unstained from the world is not, it's not a result of us finding ourselves. It's us being found. It's when he chose us and took us out of our filth. You know what? The, the sanctifying process, we obey, but God is the one who cleans He's the one who prunes and purifies. He's the one who's making us more like him. So to keep oneself unstained from the world is not just a human effort and obedience. It's actually a divine act by God, and it's an act of grace whereby he's cleaning us, he's molding us into his image, and sometimes he has to break us to make us more like him. Sometimes he has to sever a relationship that you knew was ungodly, Sometimes he has to take away your bank account because you were entrusting yourself to riches rather than God. He might even remove a whole career from you. Because God will have no rivals in your heart. He wants you to be a genuine worshiper. Unstained from the world. Because saints, if we call ourselves saints in the church, 
we are called to live holy. We are called to care for the orphans and widows with an unstained life that voids itself from being worldly. So remember, be slow to speak, bridle the tongue, visit the orphans and widows, live a pure life. That's what we, the church, are called to do. Father, we thank you. Would you help us? We thank you for the book of James. We thank you for the inspired word you've given us. Would you help us, Lord, to glorify you in our efforts in such a way to speak of your holiness, of your goodness.